My name's Lloyd. I'm one of the pastors here. Let me uh, welcome you here this morning. It's good to have you uh, with us. Uh, tomorrow, my family and I were flying um, back to the UK uh, for a few weeks. Um, you might have noticed that I sound a little different. And so um, uh, we're going back to the UK. We start off in London and we end up in Glasgow. Um, I like to share that that's where I'm from. I guess in Glasgow, I'm just Chinese, but everywhere else in the world, I am Chinese and Scottish, and people uh, need a little moment to kind of get that configuration going and figure out what's going on. So I'll let you do that now. But we're going back. We're going back um, tomorrow for a few weeks. Uh, first time since the pandemic happened. Uh, you will hope our little daughter here has not met many of our family. For example, um, my mum and Miriam's mum uh, came after she was born. But since then, it's just been a, a picture on a phone. So we're going back for a few weeks uh, tomorrow. Um, it's not the end of the pandemic. Um, I know that because only a few weeks ago uh, we had COVID. Um, and so that's why I didn't preach this sermon then. I I'm preaching it now. But it feels like we're beginning to kind of see it as something in the past. Um, and I think as I look back on the pandemic, um, I'm going to view it, I think, probably in shifting ways. But for now, um, it was definitely a period where I, I felt some fear for obvious reasons. But I distinctly remember it being a period where I felt the weight of failure during that season. I don't know why in particular, but my failure as a husband, as a father, as a friend, as a human being who hoarded toilet roll or sanitizer, or a pastor, you know, um, being in a church where we had just uh, merged together, uh, Emmanuel and St. Peter's Fireside together, I felt the weight of, of failure. I felt the weight of the failure of the church too. I don't know what it was about that season, but there were so many instances where um, prominent leaders in the church, Christian leaders kind of fell or, or abused their responsibility, uh, both here in North America and uh, back in the UK as well. It was disorientating, it was hurtful. I didn't know what to do about it. So the question this morning is, how do we deal with failure? How do you deal with failure? Well, we're going to see uh, this morning how Jesus uh, deals with it when it comes to his disciples from Luke 9. And we're going to be looking at actually 43 to 51. So because I missed a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, then Alistair preached his one from Mark. So he's dealt with um, that first miracle a bit. And I'm going to take on from verse 43 onwards. Um, but as we do that, as we see how Jesus responds, we'll see that he reshapes, he redeems, and he reframes Failure in ways that only he can. So shall we begin? Let's pray together. Father, Son, Spirit, thank you that you are good, that your love endures forever. You are God and you is light. And um, with you is the fountain of life and um, in your presence we, we see light. And so we ask that uh, your spirit would shine that light into our hearts this morning uh, through your word. You'd have um, whatever is of me fall to the side, fall by the wayside, and what, are, what is of you um, be imprinted in our hearts and in our minds and change us uh, to be more like your son, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So firstly, Jesus reshapes failure and greatness. Okay? The immediate context of our passage is the high of the transfiguration of Jesus and then the low of the disciples' inability to heal this young boy. In verse 
42, it says this, but Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And then in verse 43, it says this, and they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples. So after wowing the crowds with this great miracle, he says to his disciples this, listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. He says to his disciples, he gets them in, he says, listen carefully, come here, I want to tell you something. And in the ESV it says this, let these words sink into your ears. He says to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. So he's been praised for his greatness, he's just um, worked this miraculous miracle and everyone's like, whoa, this is amazing, they're marveling and he says to his disciples, come here, I want to tell you something. The son of man I am going to be delivered into the hands of men. But the disciples, as is their tendency, they just don't quite get it. We are told that it was hidden from them. Perhaps their view of greatness um, stops them from having the framework to understand what Jesus was saying. Perhaps they just couldn't grasp it. It was like uh, chasing the wind, catching the wind in their hands. They just couldn't do it. But importantly, they weren't able to ask about it. They were afraid to ask about it. Maybe they assumed... Maybe they assumed Jesus had misspoken. Surely that's not what he means. Maybe they were afraid of the answer. Certainly they didn't ask for clarity. Maybe they thought to themselves, well, Jesus, he's literally healing diseases and he's given us authority to, to defeat demons, right? He's got some skills, this guy. He's been delivered surely to nobody. He's not been delivered to anybody. He's like the boxer who is nicknamed the postman because in the big fights, he's the one who delivers. He doesn't get delivered. He's the one who delivers the knockout punch to these uh, demons and these sicknesses and anyone who comes at him, he's got what it takes. He's got this. This kind of greatness they like, right? They want this sort of greatness. They want to follow this kind of greatness like they see in the healing, like they see in, in dealing with demons. And so the disciples don't get Jesus connecting greatness to his own purposes. They just, they just don't get it. They don't get it so much that Jesus' statement, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, is set in contrast with an argument that they then have. Okay? So this uh, saying that Jesus says is then set in contrast with an argument that they have. Verse 46. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Perhaps they were arguing about this uh, because that's all they knew. It was a cultural thing. It was banter, maybe. Maybe it felt like a, that life was a contest about greatness. Maybe um, this was an argument that they were always having. Put 12 men together and they're definitely going to be like talking about greatness and who does this best and who can... I was going to say pee, but I won't say it. Um, uh, the furthest. You know, it's anything. <laughs> With guys, you put them together and um, they're going to try and figure out who's best at this and that. Sorry about that. That was a little uncouth. I apologize. <laughs> it was just there, and it just, it just kind of came out. I'm sorry about that. What exactly were they doing when they were arguing? Was it a kind of form of arm wrestling, a thumb war, singing, I'm the king of the castle, and you're the dirty rascal? It sounds a little childish, doesn't it? Maybe it was more grown up than that that I'm giving them credit for, and they were talking about what weapon they'd be wielding when they dealt the final blow to the Romans or what position they'd like in the new government of a liberated Israel. But it's how we've been brought up, isn't it? Growing up, I played top trumps. 
Remember top trumps? Who's played top trumps before? Oh, wow, it's a UK thing. <laughs> Literally two people. Wow. I've got to check my illustrations here. It's this card game. You might call it different where you have like a car and it's got all these different characteristics and it's got numbers. And then the more numbers you have of them, it defeats the person's card. Anyway, um, I will check that next time. It's called top trumps. Um, and so uh, that's something. What about uh, rock, paper, scissors? I know that because Joey plays that, so I should have, I should have checked that. Um, cut you, bash you, surround you, I'm going to defeat you, right? We've been taught to defeat others, to trump others, and we love to win, we hate to lose. We live and breathe this. As we grow up, asking this question, what am I going to be the greatest at? How am I going to show that I'm greater than this person. I want to be the greatest. I don't just want to be great. I want to be the greatest. What do you want to be great at? In what ways do you want to be the greatest? What if for us this question of who is great is an argument that we're always kind of having and we just don't realize it? What if it's under the surface of many conversations, many glances, many assumptions that you're subconsciously asking? Who's the greatest? Who's worth the most? Who's got the bigger apartment? Who's the most impressive? How does that person trump me and I trump them? Where do I put myself in this hierarchy, this ladder? Notice how this argument comes right after a failure. Their failure to heal, and then they're asking, okay, who is greatest then? What if our desire for greatness in this area comes because we have failed in this other area? What if it's a, an overcompensation, an insecurity, a pressure that we're feeling that comes out in this desire to, to put other people down, to find my place higher than you? We see the disciples want to be at the right hand of Jesus when, he, when they think that he's going to win a war. They love it when Jesus defeats demons. They don't get when Jesus says his greatness is going to be different to what they expect. He's going to be delivered into the hands of men. They like healer Jesus dealer, a demon defeater Jesus, warrior Jesus, but they don't know what to do with delivered into the hands of men. They don't get it. They just don't get it. That's not the kind of greatness they want to be seen following because greatness then was measured by the company that you kept. Greatness then, and in many cultures now, is, is about your relationships, about the company that you keep, who you have dinner with. The great had dealings with the great, and handled matters of great significance. That was, that was how you showed that you were great. And so it's brilliant when Jesus does this. To their childlessness, he brings a child. To their desire for significance, he brings the person with insignificance in the culture of that day. Status was a preeminent concern in ancient society, and children had none. And so Jesus, in verse 47, says this. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Jesus literally brings a child to make his point here. Maybe the same one who had been healed, perhaps. Children's place in society then was unimportant and helpless. They were too young to be significant. If you think about it, if you go back through the generations, like children had less and less like importance. Like now, they kind of rule the house in some ways, right? Um, nap times, you know, what, what they want to do. Um, 
you go back, my generation, we had a bit less, and then the generation back, they were like farming and stuff and doing things, getting told not to have feelings. Go back, I saw a little video where a three-year-old was like put down chimneys to do chimney sweeping, right? Like a little video that, that they've just recently discovered um, of, a, of a little person, maybe that small, and he's covered in soot, and he's just walking around next to his dad like this about to be put down a chimney to sweep the chimney. So if you imagine then going back to ancient um, uh, Greco-Roman culture, that was all uh, much less important. They had no place at all. Notice how Jesus has this little child stand not in the middle of his disciples, but he stands next to Jesus. Jesus is reshaping and reordering their view of greatness right before their eyes. He says, here is what goes on in my kingdom. You see, Jesus is reshaping their view of greatness, but he's also reshaping their view of failure as well. John Dixon is an Australian historian of religion who wrote a book called Humilitas. He argues that Jesus did something completely new when it comes to humility. He says this, It's well known that humility was not a virtue in the ethics of the dominant Greek-Roman culture. In fact, the word meant something like crushed or debased, it was associated with failure and shame. The eminent Roman historian Edwin Judge recently put it this way, humility in Greek and Roman ethics would be a degrading thing. To put yourself down to a level that you were not born to or that your standing in life did not require you to be in was disgraceful and debasing. There was no virtue in it at all. And so Dixon comments, honour has been redefined, greatness recast, if the greatest man we have ever known chose to forgo his status for the good of others, reasoned the early Christians, greatness must consist in humble service. The shameful place is now a place of honour. The low point is the high point. Humility came to be valued in Western culture as a consequence of Christianity's dismantling of the all-pervasive honour-shame paradigm of the ancient world. Humility was not a thing before this. Before Jesus came, it was debasing, it was humiliating. You'd do anything to avoid it. And it didn't originate from the disciples, you'll see, right? They didn't get it. They had to learn it. They had to learn it from Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. For him, humility was to hold power in service of others. Power, humility was to hold power in service of others. And he dies on the cross for the sake of others, for you, for, for me. And this was revolutionary, genuinely revolutionary. And you can see why it feels dissonant that the disciples were arguing about who's greater, Who's going to do this best? Who's the better one here? Jesus' greatness was in his humility and being handed over, delivered into the hands of those he had created. He turned failure into victory and failure into greatness, seeming failure into greatness in his life. Jesus turns around seeming failure and connects greatness with humility. In himself, he um, is that humble servant but then he connects humility with welcome in our passage. Jesus has earlier in the chapter refused an audience with King Herod in order, uh, he refuses a, a, an audience with, with the king. 
He was then seen with A-list company, celebs, you could say, in the transfiguration with Elijah and Moses uh, from the all-star team, the MVPs of, of the Old Testament. But he's not in the business of flexing his status by being seen with the right people, nor is he going to um, raise his profile by being not seen with those who are normally excluded. The disciples would expect him to be too important and too busy, thank you very much, for a young child to be in his, in his, uh, in his presence. When bringing the child to stand next to him, Jesus is flipping around the social norms of the day. He is saying that the kingdom he brings is different. Greatness in Jesus' kingdom is about welcoming the unwelcome with humility that comes from Jesus. He says to them in verse 48, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you who is the greatest. So if humility is to hold power in the service of others, perhaps Jesus is calling his disciples to hold power in welcoming others, to use their power to welcome others. And so as he recasts it, it made me think how much of my life is connected uh, to those who do nothing for me. How much of your life is connected to those who do nothing for you. You see, his disciples were to welcome everyone, but it was uh, the welcome of those who offered no payoff in status that showed that they were really welcoming them because of Jesus, i.e. welcoming them in Jesus' name. Because when we welcome people um, because it just so happens that it makes us look good, then we really have mixed motives. I have a picture of a, a ladder and uh, we usually in this world clamber over the tops of those people at the bottom so that we can get to the top, right? What if we actually began to use our power to welcome others by being those that, that give people a lift up, a leg up, who are able to welcome those who aren't usually welcomed? Because when we welcome those who grant us no benefit, something deep is going on. Jesus is saying, it's when we love someone who does not benefit us, can we know that something beyond us is actually happening? Something Christ-like is bubbling up in us. Something cross-shaped is taking place. Something is changing in our hearts and we really are following Jesus. Now, I love it. St. Peter's what we do with the young people. Um, Kids Church is, is genuinely um, amazing when I've been in there and, and what uh, Miss Rachel teaches them. But we had a little service here the other day um, and the kids were involved there reading. Some of you remember who was here for that service. Um, and the kids were doing communion with us as well. And so I got to sit here with um, Ellen and Kira, who aren't here today, neither are parents, so they won't be embarrassed. But it was one of the greatest privileges, I would say, of my kind of church-going life to do that with them. But to see her, their family friend, uh, Joel, who often comes with them, um, and is obviously a family friend of theirs, kneel down and have... Ellen say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ. And Kira say, the blood of Christ shed for you. I get moved kind of thinking about it. This is something of the humility, the welcome, the kind of honor uh, that um, we want to give to young people because they are people. They are made in the image of God. 
And as we do that, as we honor the image of God in them, we honor the, the image of the invisible God in them. We honor the invisible God himself who's made himself known, who welcomes us, who calls us in. There's something beautiful about that that we're called to live out in our everyday lives. They do nothing for us. Actually, they're very cute, to be fair, and uh, they offer a lot of joy and happiness. But in, in honoring them and bringing them uh, to a table, to a table where we are um, welcome because of grace, there's something beautiful about that. We're beginning to get it, I think, I hope. But the disciples aren't getting it. They just still aren't getting it. We go to uh, verse 49 and 50. Master, says John, we, see so we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us, is he? Jesus says, don't stop him for whoever is not against you is for you. John's response kind of exemplifies some next level incomprehension and misunderstanding. He still doesn't get it. He still just doesn't get it. Not even after Jesus' illustration of this young boy, Jesus is calling them to forget status, but this is exactly what John's doing, denying this outsider permission to work in Jesus' name just because he wasn't in the gang, just because he hadn't signed in and got the name badge and paid the registration fee. That is, he was making a boundary on the basis of honor like normal. This person did belong to the community, um, did not belong to the community around Jesus, and so his behavior was not welcomed by John. And what's ironic is that this unnamed exorcist had been working in Jesus' name, just like the disciples had been instructed to do, and actually had done the job that they were wanting to do that they couldn't do. One commentary sums this up well. The failure of the disciples is represented at its most basic level in this. Jesus had implored the disciples to honor those of no status at all, but they have refused partnership with one who did not share the status they assumed for themselves. I asked you earlier, what greatness are you pursuing? I wonder if you've got any further insight, what's going on for you? For the disciples, it was their desire for the power of status. And Jesus brought this child of no status to challenge them. What is in your life, I wonder, to challenge your idea of greatness before God? What has been brought to your life that you're wanting to shun, you're wanting to get rid of, you're wanting to kind of hurry up and get over, but actually is there, like that little child was, um, to realign, to reshape your view of greatness before God? How does he want to actually reshape your view of greatness that it aligns with his kingdom? So Jesus reshapes the view. There's lots to think about there. I've been pondering for a while. Jesus reshapes the view of failure and greatness. Next we see that actually he redeems failure. Okay? So he's reshaped failure and greatness and now he redeems failure. This chapter, if you go back and read it later on today, um, straight after, if you're super keen, but sometime this week perhaps, read this chapter, is littered with failures of the disciples. Even the things they get right, they kind of get wrong. They want to feed the 5,000, but they don't know how or who is with them that can feed them. Peter gets that Jesus is God Messiah, but he's confused with Jesus when Jesus says he must suffer and get killed and be rejected. In the transfiguration, um, they see the glory of Christ in Christ. 
uh, bright as a flash of lightning, and Peter wants him to stay in those tents up there. He doesn't get it. The king isn't supposed to stay up in the mountain. Um, he says, let's build a, a little tent for you guys so you can stay there. Jesus says, no, that's not what it's about. And each time in Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, the transfiguration is followed by the failure of the disciples to heal the only child with seizures. I wonder why that is. The high of the transfiguration up a mountain and then they come down and the reality of sin, the reality of failure is right there before them. There's an echo of um, Moses coming down from the mountain and seeing the Israelites literally doing the opposite of the Ten Commandments that he had written down in tablets. The Gospels are full of moments from the disciples that if I were the editor, I would have said to them, cut that part out, John. You look like an idiot. At least take your name out of that bit. You look like a chump, honestly. Peter, can you expect to be a leader in the church if people actually know how badly you messed up? Are you sure you want Mark to write that bit in? Okay, don't come crying to me if this Christianity thing doesn't really take off. That's what I told them. They don't get it. They just don't get it. It's like a catalog of failures. It's like a reverse resume. Like you put all your worst things down there. And that's what we're like. That's what I'm like. I led an alpha course. I'm leading an alpha course at, at my other job. It's kind of funny to say. Um, at UGM, for the new guys who come in, and we're giving them a little foundation on Christianity. Um, we kind of tell them we don't. No, anyway, uh, we, we, we do the alpha course just for those who enter in because it's a Christian program and it's just to give them some background. And um, at the beginning of each course, we ask people, what's one question you would ask God um, if you knew that you could get the answer? Not many people say the lottery number tickets. I would have, you know, gone for that. But uh, one guy this week said, why are Christians also frustratingly unchristian? Good question. Good question. The disciples don't get it. They just don't get it. But also, we don't get it. We just don't get it a lot of the time. But there's hope, and this is the hope here. that He gets it. Jesus Christ gets it. He gets them. He's got them. He gets us. He comes to get us. He seeks after us. And this chapter frames it quite well for us, I think, because right after our passage, it says this in verse 51, and I got um, Michael to read this, even though it wasn't up on screen, because it does this. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. If you read the other gospel accounts, you discover that historically Jesus goes back and forth between Galilee and Jerusalem several times. Some people have called this Luke's travel narrative. Because now in the order of things that Luke has topically, he emphasizes again and again that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die, to rise again. And in case we've forgotten the point that he's made, he keeps bringing us back to, he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to Jerusalem. His travel itinerary goes to Jerusalem. He resolutely sets out for Jerusalem. Failure, Jerusalem. Failure, Jerusalem. Despite all the failures of the disciples, he heads for Jerusalem. He doesn't think that's it, no more. Enough of that failure rubbish. That's one failure too many. I'm not going anymore. No, he sets his face to Jerusalem because that's what he came to do. He goes to Jerusalem to die. He dies at the hands of men. 
the one who threw stars into space, came to become subject to the hands of people who he had created. The one who designed opposable thumbs, who knew that each person's fingerprints would be different um, depending on um, their genetics and how they were in the womb. This person came and had his hands nailed to a Roman cross, his fingers and fingerprints covered in blood. The one who had unlimited power submitted to the limited power of men so that his power to welcome would be limitless. He used his power in the service of others. He used his power in the welcome of others. Despite all our failure, all our sin, all our shame, he comes to find us. He comes to get us. A phrase that struck me in recent days is, is from a, uh, uh, an author and a kind of um, psychologist called Kurt Thompson. He says, we all come into the world looking for someone looking for us. We all come into the world looking for someone looking for us as children. And in the very early days, we're doing that in our childhood. In much of our life, we realize we're looking for someone looking for us. In our shame, we hide. In our shame, we look away. We, we give up on that person looking for us. Jesus is coming after us. His goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our life. He's coming after us in goodness, not to, to, to primarily to rebuke us and to kind of tell us off, but to tell us he welcomes us. He wants us. He's come to get us. He uses every last inch of his greatness, of his power to welcome us, to welcome you, to welcome me. He redeems failure. Let me read a little poem here, just as a little um, break. Um, I've got one more point here, but it's uh, called Love Three by uh, George Herbert, who was a, um, a parish priest in, in England. What century? 17th. Let me read this to you. Love bade me welcome. Love bade me welcome. Yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, Worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, the ungrateful. Oh, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I've marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame. My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. Love bade us welcome. He reshapes greatness and failure. He redeems failure. Finally, he reframes failure. If it's true then that Jesus redeems our failure, that it sets him more resolutely and deliberately to the cross, then how might that reframe our view of failure? Is it possible that for those in Christ, for those who follow him, our sin doesn't actually drive him further away, but actually closer to us? Is it possible that actually when we sin, it drives him not further away, but closer to us? I know it feels 
improbable. It doesn't sound quite right, does it? Because when the Bible uh, speaks of God's setting his face against sin, his revulsion against it, it's for those who reject him, who turn their face against him. These sins bring out a holy anger. And how could a, a morally serious God respond otherwise? But to those who do belong to him, what if our sins actually stir up a holy longing, a holy love, a holy tenderness? Because Paul writes this, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. What does that even mean? Dane Ortland, a pastor reflecting on the Puritan emphasis on Christ's heart for us, writes this. The guilt and shame of those in Christ is ever outstripped by his abounding grace. When we feel as if our thoughts, words, and deeds are diminishing God's grace towards us, those sins and failures are in fact causing it to surge forward all the more. What if that's true? That our sin actually causes his love, his grace, his mercy to surge towards us all the more. And we also need to remember that, that there is no such thing as grace, right? Grace does not mean that, they, that we are given a thing or some stuff, some object or, or some um, um, liquid. Grace means that we're given a person. Therefore, if we sin and grace abounds all the more and grace comes only to us in Christ himself, then when we sin, the very heart of Christ is actually drawn out towards us. Where the disciples failed, Jesus headed more intently to Jerusalem on the cross. When we sin, the very heart of Christ is drawn out to us. His heart surges forward to us all the more. And this is huge, isn't it? It's against all that we've thought. Whenever there was an argument in my family home growing up, um, there would be no resolution. There would just be distance. Flaming silences. Maybe you know that well. I think Canadians probably do that quite well. Passive aggressive and all that sort of stuff. I mean, I don't want to slight you up here. Sorry about that. I've noticed that. that I, I see that in myself. After a while, when things calmed down, tensions would thaw. And after a few days or weeks, depending on how serious it was, things would get back to a relative normal. Distance to me is what happens when we do something wrong, when relationship is damaged. But what if in the economy, of, the economy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for those who belong to Christ, our sins actually move his heart towards us all the more? If that's true, then this is love. This is love vast as the ocean. This would reframe our failure. Failures wouldn't separate me from him anymore, but might actually draw me closer to him in some miraculous upside-down kingdom way. It would mean that his silence is not his absence. It would mean that feeling distant does not mean detachment. It would mean that my feeling of estrangement need not be because of my sin, but might be the location of where change actually happens. What would it look like for us to actually welcome something of that in our own lives and seeing the pain of our failure uh, taken into ourselves, not to primarily to shame us, but to let something bear fruit and grow in our hearts, a trust in grace, a, a reliance on grace, a, 
are kind of moving towards the one who shows us that grace, that truth about ourselves and of God might be revealed in those failings themselves. Whether those might be longing for intimacy and, and, and sexual struggle, seeking a sense of rootedness and resenting not being able to ever own a home in Vancouver, of hoping for belonging in the places where endless people-pleasing and perfectionism stifle your voice. What if that is the very location where growing in maturity is found, where growing in trust of Christ is found, even where a passion and purpose begins to be cultivated in you? I guess the options for us are this, to be puffed up, to prove ourselves, to fail and then to kind of one-up the next person so we look down on them, so that we kind of have a, a pride that, that means that I, I pit myself up against the next person in the wrong down. And we become judgmental and we, we stereotype and we put people in boxes just to prove how great I am. That's what the disciples did. The other option, I guess, is this, to soften to soften to my own failures, to allow them to be reframed by Jesus and soften to others' failures. I've noticed that when I'm most judgmental um, of other people is when I'm actually most judgmental of myself. Have you noticed that? That when I began to accept something of my own failings, I began to do that for others. When I beat myself up 24-7, it's no wonder that I'm beating other people up in my mind 24-7. What if to soften was to learn that our failures can be reshaped, to be redeemed, to be reframed by Jesus? We fail. We just don't get it. But he gets it. He's got us. He's got you coming after you in love and in grace.